Hello, listeners. This is your host, Ajamone, and I hope you all are doing well. Thanks for listening to the Sound Bath brought to you by Lush Cosmetics. At the start of season one, I had the great pleasure to speak with Naomi Klein. For anyone who doesn't know, Naomi is an author, social activist, and filmmaker known for her political analysis, support of ecofeminism, organized labor, left politics in general, and for her intelligent and heartfelt criticism of ecofascism and capitalism. She's written some truly influential books, such as No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, and This Changes Everything. Naomi also teaches and co-directs the Center for Climate Justice at the University of British Columbia, Canada. I was able to get to know Naomi when we were both part of a group campaigning for a feminist future with a movement to elect Bernie Sanders in 2020. I know her to be a passionate, committed, and very caring person. Her work really speaks for itself, but I was so thrilled I got the chance to talk to her on the show and hear some of her personal reflections on the meaning of that work and on what it means to care for yourself, your community, and the earth. Our conversation ranged from ecofeminism to taking walks in the forest to the power of art to uplift. Some parts of that conversation never quite made it into the episode, which is why I'm so happy to be able to share them with you now. I live in so-called British Columbia in Canada, and it it's been an interesting time to be here. I, I had been living in the States and I grew up here and, and moved back after the Bernie, big Bernie disappointments and just wanting to be a little bit closer to nature as well uh, and closer to family. But the place where I am is, it's just so intense. It has been so intense in every perspective, I guess I, I would say. It's been this, it has felt like this period of apocalypse in the sense of true unveiling of of just just the past year so we're speaking in in March and last May there was this news came that not far from where I live uh, in a, in a community called Kamloops in the interior of, of British Columbia where I have qu- quite a lot of friends it's a, it's the, the ter- territory of the Sequatchie nation and this, the Tukumlup Sequatmuk Nation shared the news that they had confirmed that on the grounds of a former residential school, a former boarding school where Indigenous children were forcibly taken, and it really shouldn't be called a, a, a school. These were absolutely sinister genocidal institutions, and there were many in the United States and in Canada's, across Canada as well. This was, I think, the largest one, and they had confirmed that the remains of 215 children were found on the grounds of the former residential school. And it was almost as if the earth itself was giving up its secrets. And, and then in school, after at the grounds of these former horrific institutions, they started using this technology, this radar technology, and, and found more than a thousand unmarked graves. And the searches are still ongoing. So that was in May and, and, and the grief of that just completely like rocked the nation. And it may sound like a small thing, but we celebrate Canada Day on July 1st, the national holiday. It's our July 4th. And several communities canceled Canada Day. And even in ones where they had, like where I live, there was a procession, but it was all, there were no flags. People didn't wave flags. And it was a true, a questioning, 
like that I've never seen before of, of really questioning the fundamentals of the, na- of the settler state, of the settler nation state, to the, to the extent that settlers didn't want to f- fly flags. And I've never been somebody who flies flag, and I don't think you are either, but, you know, this is a community where people were completely comfortable with it, and they just suddenly weren't, and were wearing orange, which is the color of the movement calling for justice for residential schools. And I just want to kind of put a pin in it because, you know, everybody saw the trucker convoy, right? And that on all those Canadian flags, it was like this nationalism roaring back. So I think we're in this kind of strange dialectic between this deep questioning and a, and a deep discomfort with, and I, th- I think it's, there's a lot of parallels with what's happening with you know, what's being called critical race theory, but is actually just learning about the history of the United States and the fundamental role of enslavement and the reality of racial capitalism and just a desire to cling to the myths, right? And cling to the fairy tales. So yeah, you asked me what inspires me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm inspired by the ways that, that Indigenous communities around me are metabolizing that grief and turning it into transformation. And at the same time, on the front lines of stopping new pipelines, and uh, there's an amazing movement called the Tiny House Warriors, and it, uh, which is also a Sequatmuk movement led by, by people who, like the Manuel family, and I've done, done some a podcast about them, but they were, this was all happening at the same time, I guess is what I'm saying. So the Tiny House Warriors are, are, are a group of Sequatmuk women who happened to come from survivors of that very school in, in, in Kamloops, but have gone just off grid. Kenneth's manual didn't send her kids to schools, period. She unschooled them. And in the path of this pipeline, this oil pipeline, they've put these tiny solar-powered houses and have been living in them for a couple of years. And so they're sort of embodying the transformation that they want. And that transformation is both land back. So they're claiming their ancestral land, despite the fact that the Canadian state doesn't recognize their rights to that land because it's beyond the, the reserve. And, and they're living it in a completely different way. And at the same time, they're stopping the infrastructure that is the threat to our collective home. So, I mean, it's just, it's extraordinarily inspiring, but it's also heartbreaking because they're facing, you know, constant criminalization and harassment. But just, it's just amazing courage. One of the things I draw most sort of metaphorically from this part of the world, I mean, the salmon are everything to me. (laughs) um, And just that the generosity of the species and the way it can feed the ocean and the forest simultaneously. But the the part of of the, the world where I, I am is it has been logged. It's not old growth. There's just a few of the real giant trees left. It's it's second and third growth. And because of that, when you go into the forest, you see the you see the nurse, you know, sometimes the mother trees that they're sometimes called, or the nurse logs. What you know, the, the these these dead trees or the the stumps, right, that are, you know, quote unquote dead, but they all have, at this stage in their development, they all have trees growing out of them. And the way in which the old dead trees are the soil for the new ones, and they do these, just the, the amazing shapes, the, the way the roots of, of a young tree grow around a stump of a giant that has been logged, is just, it's such a powerful metaphor for me of just what is possible. And the kind of 
the myth of death itself, really, because it, death is the fountain of life here in every way. I think it's a really helpful frame, you know, in asking ourselves in how we allocate our time and how we make our choices. Because the, the phrase wellness is never, it's never been, uh, it's not one I use much. And, that, and I don't mean that we shouldn't take care of ourselves, but I do think that the question of, is this replenishing or diminishing? Is this depleting or replenishing? And how can we make, how can we prioritize replenishing relationships, regenerative relationships with each other, with ourselves, with the planet? It's not a bad guiding principle, <laughs> right? Um, and and I do think even in, in in thinking about social movements that we do deplete we do deplete too much um, without without prioritizing the the filling back up right and and I think that you know when we talk about Zoom fatigue and things like that I think part of it is that we are not like these technologies that we use are are are, are better at depletion than they than they are at replenishing. <laughs> And so we're all working as hard as we ever have, but we're not getting that replenishment of that we just get from being in each other's company and having downtime and just having fun after a meeting or, you know, um, and we're just doing the meeting and not the fun after the meeting, right? And, 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 and so if we're exhausted, that might be why that we're not, we're not pr- prioritizing replenishing enough. And this is part of the reason why I decided to to live where I'm living. I mean, my 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 family is is here, but it's is really out of the way. <laughs> but it's the the inconveniences are also part of why I love it. It's it creates friction in this world that has fetishized frictionlessness. It's difficult to leave here, <laughs> so I have to really want to leave. It has there has to be a good reason. And so it, it roots me in place in a different way. And it's, you know, I, I can walk out of my house into the rainforest, into the temperate rainforest, and, and it's just there. And we can forage for chanterelles. And, you know, that's, that's, that's plant medicine too. And just, and just getting to learn about a, just a place, like the complexity of one little, little piece of this planet and, and putting down roots here and just, slowly, slowly, slowly learning a few of its little secrets. And, and so, yeah, this feels like a very, very sacred place to me. I mean, to be honest with you, Aja, like this place has saved me many, many times. You know, I wrote the shock doctrine here. And, and if I hadn't have been in such a beautiful place, I don't think I could have immersed myself for that many years in such the worst, the worst that humans can do, right? The, the, you know, they're just torture manuals and torture testimonies and, and, and interviewing survivors and, and being in war zones. If I hadn't have had this place to heal and to counterbalance the, the, the violence of the material, I don't think I could have written with any kind of love and compassion and and had it not just be a confirmation because I don't think that that work is just like here's the worst things humans can do it's in a it, it it's an attempt to I in a weird way I see it as a hopeful book because it's saying this brutal system 
did not come about through any kind of inevitability. It required this violence, right? Which should be an obvious point, but it, you know, isn't obvious to everyone. And and so telling a history of neoliberalism with the shocks left in, right? It, it, my, my, goal, my goal in it is to highlight the roads not taken, the roads that were shocked out of the way, right? And so, yeah, I mean, this is a sacred place to me <laughs> where I live. <laughs> and I'm so, 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 so grateful for it. You've been listening to part of my conversation with environmental activist and political thinker, Naomi Klein. To hear more, you can go back and listen to our second episode in season one of The Sound Bath. Stay tuned for more bonus material coming soon. And of course, we'll have a whole new season launching in fall of 2022. Please be sure to like and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast so you can catch the new season when it drops. My name is Aja Monet. Thank you so much for listening.